0: On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Thomas Ord about process theism and relational theology. So, we we'll cover all sorts of topics like what in the world does he mean by having an open and relational theology, and how might that differ from more conventional theologies like classical theism? What does it mean for God to be loving, and what is the logic of love that Dr. Ord sees? What are the models that he thinks are appropriate here, and why does he think his model? is ultimately superior. Ask him if the future is open and undetermined, how God can predict the future and have detailed prophecies recorded in Scripture. What should we make of texts that ascribe plans to the definite foreknowledge of God? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we say serious, we really mean it. So we want to be the most serious people out there about examining arguments, about understanding ideas, about engaging the whole spectrum of thought. But when we say serious, we don't just mean that. We also mean serious about a particular Christian disposition of charity alongside critical thinking. So we think that true Christian thinking, if you want to be the most serious, requires also a disposition of things like charity and curiosity. And we also say critical thinking and cheerful confessionalism, that we want to create an intellectual culture. We want to cultivate these things where we we prize these sort of virtues. And when we say curiosity, we don't mean curiosity in the vice sense, like when curiosity killed the cat. We mean it in the best possible sense. Uh, We mean it as in, I'm really interested in uh, understanding other people and their ideas. I want to be valuing them. And this is in a way, I think this is a way of loving our neighbor is to to take interest in them and say, explain to me why you think that. And I think that's really important uh, in our day and age, especially in our internet age, to actually be just curious about other people and why they think the way they do. Because I'll tell you one thing that I've learned over and over again, is that when i look at somebody else's viewpoint and say that's absolutely crazy why would anyone ever think that don't they see all these glaring problems these are so obvious when i go and talk to these people about their views i realize actually they have thought about these things they do have their own answers for these these potential problems and while i may not be satisfied in the slightest by them i become to have a new and greater appreciation for the way they think and why they say the things they do. And I can better respect them, better engage them, and better have a constructive conversation towards something that's useful. And I think that's especially useful for for our interview today. We have Dr. Thomas J. Ord with us. Uh, Dr. Ord is just a fantastic person. He's super kind, super gracious, and yet we disagree deeply about the topic we will be discussing here today. I am what you would be called, I guess, a classical theist and a confessional Baptist Christian who loves the 1689 Confession of Faith. And Dr. Ord is not. So we are on really diametrically opposed uh, ends of the spectrum here. And for those of you who are listening, I think most of you are Reformed, probably leaning-ish. You're probably Protestants. And you might come into this episode, I would guess, you're probably not on board with what Dr. Ord is going to explain in this episode. Uh, You may not know what he thinks, but you know you disagree. Now, I know there's probably some people who say, yes, go Dr. Ord. I want to. I want to believe what he says. But I'm just taking a wild guess and saying that most of our listeners are not in that camp. But I think this is useful and fruitful anyway. So I think dialogue and opening up the conversation to understand different people and what they say on their own terms, and not just on our own reading of it, is really important in developing the right sort of intellectual dispositions that match uh, what we're called to as Christians. I think you find that very clearly in James 3, the wisdom that comes down from above is open to reason, is gentle, is kind, is willing to engage in these sort of discussions. So no, I'm not going to be the guy here who's just throwing fireballs or whatever, trying trying to pin somebody against the wall. I'm interested in learning and understanding why Dr. Ord thinks the way he thinks, what exactly it is that he thinks, maybe if I have mischaracterizations. I want to know more about that. So I'm interested and excited about this interview. Dr. Ord, before we jump in, do give me a little bit of background about yourself. Tell me just who you are, what you do, those sort of things. And then maybe what was sort of the impetus for thinking about these particular topics, writing about them, devoting a, a good chunk of your life to them?
1: Thanks so much for this opportunity, Jordan. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And I suspect you're right that some of my views will sound, seem uh, unusual to to your usual listeners. So thanks for uh, giving me a fair hearing. I direct a doctoral program in Open and Relational Theology at Northwind Theological Seminary, and I also direct the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Uh, I've been an academic uh, teaching undergraduate, graduate, and doctoral studies for 25 years now, something like that. Um, I. I've taught philosophy, theology. I do a lot in science and religion. Um, I'm interested in various disciplines and try to write interdisciplinary. Is that a word? Interdisciplinarily? There we go. <laughs> it's hard to say at least. Um, I uh, come to you from the little state of Idaho in America. Um, I'm an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, which is part of the uh, Wesleyan theological tradition. Um, And I've taught at various uh, Church of the Nazarene Universities. Um, Yeah, maybe that's good enough for an intro.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. The only place I know in Idaho Idaho is, I think Boise State's there, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and then Moscow, Idaho, because they're always on the internet. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yes,
1: Moscow is a beautiful place. Actually, both of them are beautiful. Idaho is a spectacular state.
0: Awesome. Well, let, let's jump into the topic. So you mentioned uh, doing work on the Center for Open and Relational Theology and things like that. What in the world is open and relational theology? <laughs> and as you explain it, maybe give me a little bit of how does it compare to more traditional or a conventional or classical sort of uh, theologies when it comes to the doctrine of God?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Open and relational theologies is a big umbrella under which fit a variety of different ways of thinking about God as open and relational. So some of you may have heard of open theism. That would be under that umbrella. Process theology would be under that umbrella. Some versions of relational theology, feminist, post-colonial, there's a variety. But what they share in common is at least two commitments. One is the idea that God is relational in the sense that God has real give and receive relationships with creation. God not only gives, but is affected by. God is influenced and influences. And this is uh, obviously against the, um, the view of what's oftentimes called impassibility in the Christian and Muslim traditions. We think that God's nature is impassible or immutable. That is, God's nature is never changes. But we think that God relates moment by moment, and that relationship is not just one way. God is affected by what happens. And that leads naturally to the second word, open, which describes the view of God moving through time, analogous to how we move through time, moment by moment. God, therefore, doesn't predestine what's going to happen in the future. In fact, can't even foreknow with certainty absolutely everything that will happen. But rather, God moves through time. God can anticipate, but can't doesn't have what we oftentimes call exhaustive foreknowledge. So a relational God who moves through time, interacting with all of creation. Um, those are the two big ideas I might emphasize two other things under that umbrella that's very common, although maybe not essential. One is that uh, creatures, at least humans, and maybe other creatures as well, have genuine freedom. I like to say genuine but limited freedom. Uh, To use the philosophical language, we affirm a libertarian free will uh, view. And uh, also the notion that love comes first in God, um, and we ought to love like God loves. And this should make a real difference when we think about our doctrines of God, as we think about our ethics. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the details of what that love looks like, but I just want to make sure I say that at the top.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. So how would you say, what, what are the differences between you and someone like William Lane Craig, Or Ryan Mullins, who I think they would probably both be categorized as some sort like the neoclassical where they deny things like impassibility and simplicity of God. Is there any distinctive way that you would differ from them?
1: Yeah, I'm not exactly sure all of Ryan's views, but we align an awful lot. We have a lot in common. Uh, Sometimes he talks as if he's more of a Molinist, which is what Bill Craig is. And uh, for those of you who are listening, and that's a new word, Molinist, want to say that... uh, God does know the future because God at the beginning uh, saw all of the possibilities and worlds, and they picked the the best of all possible worlds, to use a phrase, and that in some mysterious way, we can be free and we can affect God. God can move through time, and yet God also knows everything that's going to happen in the future. Uh, so open and relational theology can be close to uh, this Molinist view that you find in Bill and Ryan. Although in the case of Bill, Bill usually tries to make a strong distinction between his view and, and mine. Uh, Ryan, uh, you know, he, he's, he, he is much closer, I think.
0: Okay, that's helpful. And one thing I wanted to ask you at, at the beginning uh, is in one of your books, you say theology worth embracing must account for beauty and evil. Warm Fuzzies and Intense Suffering. And I thought that was a helpful way to frame our discussion a little bit. Yeah. Because I want to know, like, why do you think that's the case? Do other theological views take those sort of uh, things into account? Uh, would you say that those who want to not be open and relational are accounting for these facts? Or is it uniquely something that is uh, found in open relational theologies?
1: Yeah, I, I think almost every theologian says they want to account for beauty and evil. It's just that I'm quite unsatisfied with the attempts in some theologies. And uh, one of the things that makes open and relational theology, generally speaking, different is that we like to think that we take evil more seriously than perhaps some of our uh, counterparts. And by more seriously, we mean, we don't think God is either predestining or even foreknowing with, you know, from all eternity, all the evil that's gonna happen. Now, within the open and relational community, there's varying views on evil. So I'm gonna just kind of focus on my own here (laughs) and not to try to uh, account for everybody. My own view is that God simply can't prevent genuine evil. Not that God could, but chooses not to. But it's simply, God is simply unable to single-handedly prevent any evil occurrence. Now, uh, as you know, and probably many of your listeners, uh, there's been lots of attempts to try to uh, wrestle with the problem of evil in Christian theology. Some people have said, you know, everything that happens is allowed by God to try to make us better, a kind of character or soul-building motif. Others have said, well, uh, you know, this is God's punishment um in many ways these usual answers and there's others that i haven't listed but in many ways these usual answers seem to want to say even though we don't understand it in some way god permitting the evils of the world is really a good thing in terms of God's plan. Maybe maybe for instance God really cares most about creatures making free choices and to intervene to prevent some rape or war, well that would be, you know, God taking away free will. And so in that view, it's really freedom that God cares most about there, not necessarily the victims of the rape or the victims of the war at least from my perspective. So, I want to say there is, uh, in God, God's power cannot control others. Not just humans, not just creatures like chimps and dogs who may have free will, but all the way down to the quarks, top to bottom. God can't single-handedly prevent, let's say, viruses that create pandemics. Now, my view here is not that, as I've mentioned, it's not, I'm not saying God is voluntarily choosing not to prevent those things. But I'm also not saying that there are metaphysical laws or the laws of nature or Satan or some sort of external factors that are constraining God's power. My particular fairly unique claim is that it's God's very nature to be uncontrolling, and God can't deny God's self. That is, God's love is self-giving and others empowering and therefore uncontrolling inherently. And it's not external forces that are constraining God, nor is it voluntarily, uh, voluntary divine uh, limitations. It's God's nature that shapes or constrains or limits or tells us what God can and can't do. Okay. More to say there, but I think I'll stop.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's helpful. So there's there's several questions I want to ask related to these things. I guess the first place we probably should start is just, uh, what does it mean for God to be loving? Is there a particular mm-hmm. logic that you have in mind with when you say love is the chief sort of attribute or is first? Mm-hmm. Um, how might this differ from what people might traditionally think when they say God is loving? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think open and relational thinkers tend to say that what we talk about in terms of God's love has to be analogous to how we understand love in our lives. And how we understand love in our lives, generally speaking, there's lots of definitions. I'm not saying everyone agrees, but generally speaking, we think that love involves not only giving in ways that is going to benefit others, promote well-being, but also receiving, being in a kind of relationship in which you take in not only information, but emotional kind of data. And that plays a role then in how we respond to try to promote the good of the other, the, I like to say, overall well-being. So one of the ways in which we think God is loving and that conventional theology has failed to portray God as loving is that we think that God's love is both giving and receiving. There's a real relationship that goes on. That God actually learns moment by moment how best to love in the next moment because God takes in all the information and relationality of the world and then responds we also think there's an emotional element in God, and as you know, most of classical theists—Augustine, Aquinas, etc.—they don't think God has real emotions in relation to creation. Maybe God has, you know, eternal bliss in the Godhead, but not uh, uh, sorrow, pain, not even compassion in the sense of responding emotionally to creation. Um, so. Open, at least, you know, that's what someone like Anselm would say, for instance. He, he would say, uh, you know, we want to say God is compassionate, but we know God doesn't have any feelings. So what we think of as compassion just must be limited by our capacity to think about it. And Aquinas does something similar. So that would be another way in which God's love uh, is important. And maybe third, I could list a dozen of these, but I'll stop at the third one. <laughs> um When I say that putting love first in God, uh, I mean by that that when we think about God's other attributes, sovereignty, knowledge, presence, etc., that if there are cases in which there seems to be a clash, a contradiction, a tension between love and one of those other attributes, open and relational folks are going to tend to want to say, we should start with love and adjust how we think of those other attributes. So for instance, back to the power thing. If 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 we think that love would rescue people who are in danger, who are in pain, who are being hurt in some way, and we think that a person who is loving and who could rescue it would do so, then we would want to say, well, God ought to do so. But obviously, at least in my mind, there's lots of things in the world that are evil that God doesn't rescue. Well, maybe we should rethink then what God is able to do in light of this priority of love.
0: Okay, that's helpful. Now, I want to ask also an overview sort of question when it comes to, to God's openness in your account. Mm-hmm. Um I think the the question that people most often have is if the future is completely undetermined or undetermined in some sense how is it that can God can use prophecies and and yeah. different things like that where it seems clearly that he has a plan and it's got it's pretty specific um, how in the world does that work if he doesn't know the future
1: yeah that's a really good question and a very common one um, I would put it like this the majority of prophecy in Scripture, <clears throat> is not, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll start that sentence again in case you want to cut that. <laughs> I would put it this way the majority of prophecy in scripture is not predictive prophecy. It's not the text saying that God, you know, X, Y, and Z is going to happen in the future because I predict it because I have a crystal ball or God stands outside of time and sees all history. Most prophecy in scripture is the prophet standing up and saying, you've disobeyed God, you're not living a life of love, and there are negative consequences that come from disobeying God. Yeah, and so we need to change. We need to be more just. We need to be more loving. We need to you know, care for the outsider, the immigrant, the alien, whatever. Um, then there's a smaller portion of prophetic passages that do seem predictive, and those, that smaller portion is God saying, I'm going to do something in the future. And open theists, open and relational people, we can say, yeah, God can make claims about what God wants to do in the future without knowing exhaustively everything that's happened in the future. In fact, that the future could still be f- open and undetermined, but God saying, you know, 10 years from now, I'm going to do X. And then God can do that. Now, of course, even in those instances, if we look carefully at Scripture, God sometimes has a change of mind, right? Yeah. The story of Jonah, for instance, in which uh, you know God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them that they're going down, they're going to burn, and, and then the, the book ends with God repenting, having a change of mind. But the majority of those passages in which God says, I'm going to do X in the future, we can just affirm those because that's God saying something. There are, however, a small minority of biblical passages that seem to require the kind of predictive prophecy that open theists like me don't want to embrace. Now, some of my fellow open theists, they've got little ways of handling these things. I'm not convinced by them, to be honest with you. Um, they are, but I'm not. But I'm comfortable saying there are some passages in Scripture that don't align with open and relational theology as I'm offering it here. Um, One passage that I like to quote is the one that many of your listeners know in which Jesus says to Peter, before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Man alive, that sounds an awful lot like, you know, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. And that just doesn't fit very well with the vision that I'm offering here. And I just like to admit that. I, however, think the preponderance, the majority of Scripture does fit the vision that I'm offering here. And uh, i am come to the place in my, my life where I'm comfortable thinking that the Bible is not a systematic theology, is not perfectly coherent. And what I'm trying to do is uh, account for what I think is the general drift or what John Wesley would say, the whole tenor and scope of Scripture and admit that maybe there are some passages that don't align with the majority.
0: Okay. So two things. Number one, I respect that. Um, Number two, I have a question now. You said (laughs) systematic versus coherent. So Mm. I'm wondering, when you say the Bible's not coherent, When Mm -hmm. you package it with systematic, I'm thinking it means something else than what's coming to my mind when I think of incoherent. So what do you mean by that when you say the Bible's not coherent?
1: Yeah, I was kind of just throwing those out there. They are different words. Um, When I say it's not coherent, I mean that there are some passages in Scripture that seem to be in tension and contradict others. There are some passages in which God seems to be a forgiving God And other passages in which God kicks people's butts and doesn't forgive. There seems to be some passages that suggest that we ought to love our enemies all the time. But then others that say, you know, sort of give justification for us to kill others. (laughs) So, um, again, I wish it were not the case. Uh, There was a time in my life when I was younger, when I would take, I would see passages, let's say, the... um, the infamous one of bashing babies' heads against the rocks, I would look at that and I would say, oh, you know, I'd kind of squint my eyes and tilt my head and say, well, maybe from the divine vision, that's a loving thing and we just don't understand. But I'm to the place now in my life where I'm just willing to say, you know, sometimes the Bible is incoherent and sometimes the writers get God wrong. Now, I say that based on a number of uh, sort of assumptions. One assumption is that the best view we have of God comes in Jesus, and Jesus isn't in the business of bashing babies' heads. Two, it doesn't align with our deep moral intuitions. If your next door neighbor came over to you and said, I really feel like I need to take the baby out in the backyard and bash its head, you would think to yourself, Nope, God doesn't want that. Um, and three, I think despite some of these instances, the contrary, that the general scope of Scripture, the broad themes, point to a God of love and forgiveness who's not in the business of bashing babies' heads. So that's how I approach those things.
0: That's helpful. So I have one small follow-up on this, and then okay. I'll ask about something else. So the way you've described that, it seems that you're not saying there's like a di- dichotomy between the angry God in the Old Testament and the nice God in the New Testament and Jesus. It's... The problem is on the authors who incorrectly understand who God is. Is that the right way to think about it?
1: I think so. Uh, I I actually think God gets angry, but God gets angry at sin and evil and injustice. I just don't think that this anger leads God to kill people or want people killed. But um, yeah, I'm not trying to say Old Testament God, bad, New Testament God, good. I'm not saying that.
0: Okay, cool. That's helpful. Um, Now, I do want to ask about, you you mentioned the the passages of God repenting. Um, I'd love to talk about those a little bit. Mm. Now, obviously, I think we probably, I am assuming we both agree that when it says God repents, it doesn't mean that God did something wrong and (laughs) that he's saying, I'm really sorry, I totally messed up here.
1: Yeah, I Uh, sinned or something like that. that, Yeah, that's it. We're not saying that.
0: (laughs) So... uh, Change of mind, assuming that's what it means. He just changed his mind in some in some innocuous sort of way. Um, maybe not innocuous, is it the right word? But he just changes his mind. Let's, let's just go yeah. there. I think classical guys are going to want to say, look, that's an anthropomorphism. It's trying to communicate something that is really hard for us to understand, et cetera, et cetera. Is, in your mind, what is not satisfying about a response like that when it comes to those sort of texts?
1: Yeah, well, first I want to say... Um, um, I, and most open and relational theists I know, will agree that the biblical authors use anthropomorphic language. Uh, So there's anthropomorphism in scripture. I don't think God literally is a rock, for instance. So what we have to do is make these difficult decisions about which portions of Scripture we think more straightforwardly describe divine action and which are more metaphors and and that sort of thing. Um, And then the question is, okay, what's going to be the criteria, the framework that we bring to this decision about, let's say, we're talking about God repenting here. What's the framework we bring to the question of whether or not we think God's repenting, which happens more than 40 times in Scripture? uh, If We think that's something that's straightforwardly telling us about God's action or uh, anthropomorphic projection. And uh, what the open and relational community tends to do is to say, well, let's go back to our most fundamental conviction. Our most fundamental conviction is that God is loving. And what we see as love in the world involves sometimes people having a change of mind. Yes, I want to be the best father I can for my my daughters, but my intentions to what is best in one moment changes because the circumstances change. And so why not uh, think that that's natural to think about a, a God who's perfectly loving, that this God would always want to love, but because things change in existence moment by moment that the ways God would love might change and God's plans might be altered because of how creatures acted. So that's kind of the way we, we think about the anthropomorphic questions.
0: Okay, that's helpful. Now, here's another question. We've talked a little bit about libertarian free will or just free will in general. And I'm wanting to know, so in your mind, why is it that freedom uh, for creatures must mean having a genuine choice among possibilities? So I listen to the free will show all the time and they got like a hundred different views on free will. And one of those, you know, the classic stuff always comes down to these Frankfurt style cases of, well, this theoretically, if you were locked in a room, but you did what you wanted to do and you didn't, which didn't entail you leaving the room, then did you really have freedom? So that, those things are in my mind when I think about this sort of question. So just walk me through your opinion on this.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not going to go into nitty-gritty details in part because I I don't find all those nitty-gritty sorts of things all that helpful. (laughs) Um, But I would point to at least two big issues that I lean on. Uh, Well, I'll, I'll go three. First one. It's just difficult for me to account for moral responsibility without libertarian free will. And I'm not the only one to say that, obviously. That's a very common issue. So it seems to me that the biblical authors' moral responsibility is a big deal in the Bible. And I just can't account well for that if we don't have some measure of responsibility to choose between options moment by moment and be held morally accountable for those. So that's number one. Number two. Um, I call it an experiential non negotiable that every single one of us assume we make choices moment by moment, even if some of us deny freedom verbally. We show by our actions that we actually do think we make choices. You know you and I made choices on having this interview today. we could have done otherwise. You've got a four-year-old son there hanging out, and you assume he makes choices, and sometimes you reward or you might uh, discipline him based on those choices. We just live in a world in which freedom is assumed to be a reality. Now, maybe sometimes people overplay that and think we have more freedom than we really do. I I think that's probably likely, but um, it seems to me that if we're going to account for reality that we know best which is our own personal experience, we should affirm the reality of what I call genuine but limited freedom. And then third, this one's probably more controversial amongst your listeners, but it's just hard for me to read scripture and not think that it ta- it's talking about people making free choices. Um, And there being consequences for those choices. So I recognize that that's going to be a debatable issue. Some people come to scripture and think that there's no freedom there, but I come to it and it just seems to be all over the place.
0: So now I have another question in your mind. Is God purely immaterial? Um, And why would anyone want to think that he has a physical body of some sort?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let me start with the v- with a view that I don't affirm, but um, and then I'll go to the one that I do. There are some open and relational theists who are uh, from the Latter Day Saint tradition, the Mormon tradition, and in that tradition, they think God actually has a localized body somewhere, um, and um, there's certain statements about. Perhaps us becoming gods. And, you know, I won't go into details there. I want to begin there by saying um, I don't affirm that. I don't think God has a localized divine body. However, I do want to say that God is a universal spirit with both a mental and physical dimension. So, universal, not localized, spirit not a physical body, but this spirit has a physical and mental dimension. Now, is that materiality? Is that immaterial? Well, you know you know the arguments in history about what's going on there. It seems like if it's a spirit and if it's an invisible spirit, it's really weird to talk about it having materiality, because we usually think of materiality as having a physical dimension. We can perceive other five senses. But the proposal I have on the table that I think aligns actually pretty well with Scripture is that God is a universal spirit whom we can't perceive with our five senses, but whom we do perceive through what I would call non-sensory perception, or what John Wesley would call spiritual sensations, or even Calvin has this kind of a notion, that in some way we have a spirit that could perceive the divine spirit. And um, so that's when i say god has a physical dimension it's a it's a proposal that has no real proof as far as i know but it's it helps overcome all kinds of problems that arise when we talk about divine action uh, and those problems are, you know, how can a purely spiritual being affect rocks if, they don't, if they're not spiritual? Well, in my way of thinking, God is a spiritual being with mental and physical capacities, but everything that exists also has mental and spiritual capacities. So there's no, um, what in philosophy we call, combination problem. Um, So that's just one, I'm kind of getting nerdy here and down a sidetrack, but that's one of the reasons why I want to say God is a universal spirit with both physical and mental dimensions.
0: Okay, so let me be a little bit more nerdy again one okay. more time. <laughs> I don't know if you do much work in anthropology, but there's that sort of interaction yeah. sort of problem between body and spirit. So would you yeah. in a similar way say, no, I don't want to be a substance dualist of sorts. I would be correct. more materialist, physicalist, whatever the terminology is about uh, human persons. Yeah,
1: great question. Um, I don't want to be a materialist or a uh, idealist. I don't want to be a dualist. I'm one of those panpsychists, or the phrase I like is, uh, um, uh, uh, what's my, I forgot my own phrase. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) material mental monist. (laughs) Material mental monist, or dual aspect monist. So I think uh, the human mind interacts with the brain and body because the brain and body are also comprised of uh, both of entities with both physical and mental dimensions. And then uh, you know what makes my scheme I think attractive is then I can say and God is also like a mind except the divine mind is universal whereas yours and mine is not.
0: Okay that's that's super interesting and also helpful to clarify and think through that that issue. So another question I have, uh, you know, I was, I read, um, Brian Orr's book, uh, that's, I guess it's a primarily a critique of your work. And one thing he, he brought up is that it sounded like you want to say that God doesn't create out of nothing. Mm, is that yeah. a fair characterization of your position? And if so, why wouldn't God create out of, out of nothing?
1: Yeah. Brian got me right on that. Hmm. Um, I don't think the Bible has God creating out of nothing. The closest one might get is 2 Maccabees, which isn't in the Protestant canon. But even then, it's talking about a woman's womb, which is not nothingness. So I don't think anything in the Old Testament and the New Testament explicitly talks about God creating out of nothing. And all of the the claims that I know of in both Testaments uh, either explicitly talk about God creating in relation to others or imply so. One of the most straightforward ones is in 2 Peter, in which it says God created by means of water and out of water. But there are other passages, etc. So yeah, I reject creation out of nothing. I think people who take scripture seriously ought to at least be open (laughs) to rejecting creation out of nothing. If we take um, the current historical theology seriously, it appears that the view of creation out of nothing uh, emerges in Gnosticism in about the second or third century. And it makes sense that that would be so, since the Gnostics think that the created order is inherently evil, and they don't want uh, this pu- pure and perfect being called God engaged with this evil matter. And so, you know, creation out of nothing. But it gets, it gets picked up by early church fathers, especially Tertullian, and now it's prevalent within Christianity and, and Islam, less so in Judaism, but it's, it's, you know, it's kind of considered an unofficial orthodoxy within Christianity. I think we ought to reject it. There are a bunch of reasons why, but what first led me to start thinking we should reject it was the problem of evil. Um, if God has the kind of capacity to create something from absolute nothingness, God would be able to do so in the present. And God set up the whole thing in this particular way. Uh, If you read someone like Al Plantinga, for instance, Al's very specific on this. He thinks, yep, God can continue to create out of nothing right now. Um, In my way of thinking, that makes the problem of evil unsolvable. Because God is guilty, culpable for not only uh, setting things up, the way they are single-handedly, but also failing to create out of nothing objects that would prevent genuine evils right here and right now. So it was the problem of evil that first got me down to thinking that maybe we ought to jettison creation out of nothing. Now I've got 10 or so additional reasons why we ought to do so relating to uh, scripture and you know history and ecological concerns and the logic of love, etc. But uh, Brian's right. I reject creation out of nothing.
0: So do you think rejecting that has any problematic entailments, I can imagine someone saying, well, if you get rid of that, then it seems problematic that God would exist alongside something else, which seems to violate certain intuitions about what God is and, and what he should be like.
1: Yeah, another great question. Um, it definitely violates the way Augustine, for instance, thinks about God and the way many classical theists want to talk about a divine aseity. I affirm divine aseity if by that we mean God necessarily exists. I think that's the, the most basic assumption there. But God can both necessarily exist and always been, be creating others in relation to others. So I have a novel proposal to on the table to replace creation out of nothing. The problem, before I give to my proposal, let me say the problem at this stage it seems is that people think they have to choose between two options either god once existed all alone maybe in trinity but you know all alone and for whatever reason out of love to display god's glory whatever decided to create out of nothing creation you know if you think it's 13.8 billion years ago or 15,000 years ago whatever god did it boom all alone And that leads to some of the problems I've mentioned. The other option, people think, is that, well, there must be a world out there eternally. And God must sort of come upon this world and say, hey, you know, I think I'm going to do something different. Here's some stuff I found laying around. Um, I'm going to make something new from this scratch. And that way of thinking seems that seems to undermine the notion that God creates everything. After all, if God stumbled upon this stuff, where did that come from? My proposal says this, God everlastingly creates. There's never a time that God exists all alone. But everything that's in relation to God was created by God. And God creates in one moment out of that which God created in the previous moment, and this creative process is everlasting. I like to call this God, the ever creating God, the God of classical theism and the God most Christians believe in isn't creating by necessity. We shouldn't say this God is creator, but in God's essence, because this God could have, according to the tradition, just decided to be exist all alone. The God I'm proposing, creating is essential to this God's nature. But God didn't stumble upon some stuff that was not created by God. Everything that is created was created by God.
0: Hmm. You know, it, it reminds me, that, ironically enough, to some degree, of Brian Leftow. So I think in, oh. in one of his God and Necessity book, he says that uh, God is necessarily creative because he, that's a, a perfection. And so he does create out of necessity, which somewhat reminds me. It seems like some people kind of blame Jonathan Edwards for sort of thinking things like that, and I and I'm sometimes convinced that that's what he's thinking too—that there's some sort of necessity there to create. Um, so that's interesting.
1: I like that. I mean, leftdown and I think very differently about God's relation to time and a lot of other yeah. things. But I'm happy to hear that he's entertaining the the possibility of God necessarily creating. I suppose then, and I don't know Brian well enough to have asked him this, but I suppose then if we ask him, uh, what was God doing before creation, he'd probably sort of pull the Augustinian trick and say, well, there's no time before creation, which seems to me like a bad move to make. It's not very, but... um, so you'd have to say if you were Brian, according to what you're, that God somehow necessarily creates, but there was no time that God was not creating and God, uh, yeah, he just gets into mental gymnastics here that I think become very difficult to make sense yeah. of. But anyway, I won't critique Brian when I don't always view very well.
0: <laughs> Doesn't Augustine, I, I he has some sort of witty retort there to that question of something along the lines of what was God doing before he created the world? Well creating, like, what was it? Um, He's creating something for a place for people like you who ask those sort of questions. Yeah. I
1: think that was more related to the problem of evil. Yeah. Well, here's here's something that's a little more serious. Uh, All right. So try this on for a mental exercise. Let's assume there is a God who is timeless, who exists all alone. So this is the position you'll find in Bill Craig and, you know, I assume Brian Leftow and and most people. A a solitary God, maybe in Trinity, but let's just set Trinity aside just for a second. A God who's timeless, without creation, all alone. Now you say, um, okay, does creating involve temporality? Now it seems like that's an obvious yes, right? Like everything we know of when we think of creating, it involves a temporal action. But if God is timeless and there's nothing in relation to God before God creates, then this creating would be atemporal. That seems really weird. That's a kind of creating that has no analogy to anything we know, of course, most of what Augustine says about God that God has no analogy to anything we know, but you see the conceptual problem there if creating is a timeful activity and there's no nothing in relation to God and God is timeless, how do we see God even creates um, there's there's some uh, you probably maybe know the literature here, but there's some. In the analytic theology uh, literature, there's people wrestling with this difficult question.
0: Yeah, um, which reminds me of one thing I want to definitely ask you is, in your opinion, I mean, from what you've experienced, what are the most common mischaracterizations of your of your position?
1: Well, one of them is uh, if you have a passable God, then God's going to be affected by the world, and God's going to go from being loving to unloving. So David Bentley Hart puts up this straw man all the time, you know, oh, we can't affirm passability because that means God is not going to be God anymore. And, you know, God's going to go from being merciful and compassionate to being an ugly jerk. Um, And what those people don't understand is that in the open and relational community, we think God's nature is timeless and immutable. And so while God is affected experientially, God's love is essentially uh, uh, immutable. God will always love. It's what changes is the way God expresses love, not the question of God's nature of love. So that's a, that's a big one. Um, another one, especially in more philosophical circles, is people will say, well, you have your God's not transcendent. Your God is just a bigger picture of who you are. Um, and of course you know we'll respond by saying yeah well your God is so transcendent we can't make any sense out of this God <laughs> So um, I like to say we' a good theology is finding a place between absolute anthropomorphism and absolute apophaticism that is, God can't be so transcendent in every single way to have no characteristics with creation or humanity. Otherwise, our language can't tell us anything true about God. On the other hand, God can't be exactly like us. Otherwise, we have no hope. There's no distinction between creator and creature. So what most people, I think, are trying to find is that right place between those extremes, and I think open and relational theology is closer to the anthropomorphic side of things, because we want to say God has real emotions, God really acts in time, God, you know, is an actor in the world, not just some sort of, ground of being or something like that you know we has relationality we're, we're bringing in some of the more uh, characteristics we think uh, that we find in existence whereas people more on they'll call it that conventional theology or classical theology they're leery of some of those moves
0: okay that, that's that's helpful so one thing you mentioned about God uh, essentially or necessarily being loving does that mean does that limit his freedom in any sense
1: Yes, it does. How about for being blunt? <laughs> yeah. Um, in the, um, there, there's a been, as you probably know, there's been a classic discussion within not just Christian theology, but philosophical theology generally. And it's oftentimes the camps are called the essentialists and the voluntarists. And most open and relational folks are in the essentialist camp. That is, we think that God can't deny Himself. To use the Apostle Paul's language, that there are certain things about God's essence that God can't change, and God's not free to do otherwise. Whereas the voluntarist wants to say God's freedom comes first, and you know, theoretically at least, the voluntarist could say God could choose to stop existing. But you know, very few of them would say that. But yeah, theoretically, that's on the table. But what makes open and relational theology a really great conversation partner in that ongoing discussion between the essentialists and the voluntarists is that we take time seriously such that God is in time. Because the stalemate in the past has often been, well, if you're an essentialist and you think God must do what the divine essence necessitates then God's not free to do anything. It's all set up. God has no freedom. Whereas the volunteers were saying, you know, well, if God's voluntarily doing all this stuff, then God could choose to be evil. God could choose. And so there's, there's this battle. Well, what open and relational folks say is, look, God's essence, that's something that's never going to change. God's not free to change that. However, Because God moves through time moment by moment and the future is undetermined, not settled, not even foreknown exhaustively by God, then God freely chooses moment by moment how to be loving. So the loving essence stays the same, but the choices, the free choices moment by moment are there. So we like to say we have the best of both worlds. We have the essentialist positive side, but also a measure of divine freedom in choosing
0: how God will be moment by moment. Mm, that's that's super cool, helpful. So I appreciate you for, for talking with us about all this stuff. I mean, obviously, I think... Um we fundamentally de- disagree on quite a bit of stuff, but I, like, I think we share some of these same sort of intuitions about like God's love for it, ex- instance. I think he essentially is loving and that he could not be otherwise in that way. So I think in some senses we do share uh, Good. some common ground in some of these things. So I appreciate you coming on and talking with us about, about your work. Is there a place that people can go if they're interested in understanding more, wanting to learn and to properly understand it? Do you have a website, those sort of things, the best place to find your stuff?
1: Yeah, the the website I would recommend is the Center for Open and Relational Theology website, which the address is the letter C, the number 4, and then the letters ORT.com, C4ORT.com. If you're a listener here and you just kind of want a very general overview of Open and Relational Theology, I wrote a book simply called Open Relational Theology, and it's really written for the average person. It's not a philosophical theology kind of book. Well, I guess it is. It's just it's in very understandable language. If you want more technical uh, stuff, at the back of that book is a long Bibliography on various topics, and you know, people want to go deeper. I've written some more academic books on the subject, but that's a nice list for people to go through and say, Hey, well, what does open relational thinkers think about the Trinity or scripture or science or whatever? There's a really nice bibliography in that book.
0: Cool, that's really helpful. So, what I'll do for everybody's listening, if you want to find those, I'll put them in the show notes so you can just click the links and it'll take you directly over there so you don't even have to, to Google it. It's right there at the tip of your finger. So everybody's been tuning in. Thanks for listening. Uh, This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.
1: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate.